How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sci-Fi Podcast, episode 241. Zeke. Yeah. You have 241 million followers. Followers. Damn it, I already ruined the quote. Voters that can vote. I would ask you what film that is I'd... from, but it's it's quite obscure, actually. Yeah, that's, that is quite obscure. I don't know what that's from. What is that from? It's uh, Emma Watson's character in The Circle, the Tom Hanks movie. Ah. Yeah, it's... I didn't think... Wasn't that movie trash? I, I like wasn't a huge was... fan of it, no. I heard that movie was pretty trash. It was like the only quote I could find related to 241. Good effort, though. I tried. Good effort. <laughs> I like this new thing of you trying. I think, You're trying yeah. to spice it up. A little bit. Which I respect, and I'm here for. I I, I kind of have the burden, Zeke, of... You know, we got our, we got our script. Yep. Not, not a physical script. We, our memories serve us well. Yes. But, of course, the script ends at, you know, episode number X, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I have the burden, Zeke, the tough burden of saying the first unscripted line in the podcast. Yes. <laughs> so I'm like, how about I just have my own script ready to go? So I can't mess it up. Still no, can. You... Still can, but, but you can't. But you're giving it a, a red hot go. Exactly. I think Which... that's the main thing. Yeah. How you doing, Jake? I'm good. I'm tired. Yeah. But, you know, things are happening, which is great. I like that it's Monday and we're we're tired, but I don't well, blame you. Cause well, I we're, we're busy on weekends. Yeah. Uh, we don't, I don't think we have the traditional lay down on the weekends and do nothing. Like, no, no, no. There's always stuff going on. Yeah. Well, I will say, to be fair, it was me and Kirsty's 18-month anniversary this past weekend. 1.5. 1.5. So we had... Dinner on the Friday, which was yep. the anniversary of our first date. Uh, Manuka in Freya. Very nice. Well, sounds quite very nice. nice. Wood-fired... Uh, oh. it, it would, this is the, they don't do pizzas, which I thought was very interesting. Wood-fired everything else, just not pizzas. So I had the pork special that night. Oh. I was very happy. But still. Still, yeah. And, and, and yeah, it was, no, it was really nice. And Kirsty had pumpkin as well. Okay. And I tried some of it. Pumpkin it was very good. I'm you trying different foods, I was Zeke. Say, I you, know it. You're a changed man. <laughs> it's all changing, Zeke. So, so to be fair, this weekend was a very sociable weekend. I didn't do a lot of work yeah. per se, but still, you just you got to keep that lifestyle, Zeke. Active lifestyle. Yeah, it is what it is. Um, before we get into trivia for the week, yes, I just wanted to note a little correction. Okay. From last week's episode, we uh, incorrectly said that Rachel Zegler was an Oscar-nominated actress. She's not. <laughs> and She's that... just an outspoken actress. Exactly, exactly. And and to, to to that point, I was pretty confident that she was as well. But then when I looked it up, I realized, oh, wait, there was a whole thing that year of her not being invited. And then I think Disney pulled some strings to get her to like, present one of the, okay. uh, the awards, and that's how she was present on the night and it was a whole thing it was a whole thing but right um, I just wanted to mention that because I think we did say last week that she was an Oscar nominated actress and it's just not true it's just well, not true we try and avoid controversy on the show we do because <laughs> we don't want to uh, give our viewers or listeners uh, misinformation no exactly we no. be careful but, but speaking of information yeah <laughs> it's kind of the, how we start shows with fun facts exactly look I'll kick us off um, okay I like it. Yeah. I mean, it's it, what I found quite interesting about this film, there, there is a nude scene, which is not something we see too there, often. There is, yes. In Wes Anderson films, we did see one in, in French Dispatch. It's not something we see a lot in 
earlier Wes Anderson particularly. Mm. Um, and it comes back to the childlike nature and child storybook t- storytelling. That's true. Um, yeah. It is quite interesting. There is that full frontal nude scene um, with Scarlett Johansson. And um, it's quite interesting. Obviously, it's, you know, we've talked about her and... She's obviously very comfortable as an actress doing mm. that that particular form of art form. She was nude in Under the Skin. I was going to say, there are probably yeah. numerous films I think she's um, nude in. Under the Skin's always the one that springs to memory because it's very uh, uh, overt. Yeah, it's quite important to the story and like her entrapment of men in that film. But yeah. Um, yeah, but it's interesting that the awkwardness actually came from the director, Wes Anderson, which I find that quite interesting. Mm. Um, so I'm pretty sure that is a double, and there's even a bit of meta-commentary in that scene about... Ah, uh, uh, about it being... A, okay, a, a double, double body. Um, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, there's obviously plenty of stuff that we could go with um, with this film. Yeah, that, that's interesting, because, yeah, we know for a fact Scarlett Johansson is pretty open about doing full, full yeah. frontal nudity in films. We've seen it before. Um, and that's why I was kind of surprised the way it was edited in this film, where it is it's sort of this awkward cut. The framing's very particular. Mm-hmm. It's right in the corner. We cut away from it very quickly. Yes. And um, the fact that you said it was actually the director in this scenario that was a little bit uncomfortable about it mm. kind of makes a lot of sense, actually. So, no, that is interesting. I'm glad you mentioned that. What about well, you, Jake? Speaking of Scarlett Johansson, I wanted to talk about this idea that Wes Anderson has just layers and layers and layers of of actors in his like little what was i going to call it you know the photo you t- you photo up in school where mm. you all line up you're all on this like little stool thing and you all yes. go up and that's basically how he casts his films photos. is uh, there you go um you know with all these a-listers and, and it's like this film cost 25 million so you're like how in the world mm. did he afford so many of them and the truth of the matter is that so many of these actors including Scarlett Hansen just took gigantic pay cuts from what they usually would charge to be in a Wes Anderson mm. film. And this is something that extends all the way back to, you know, Edward Norton's earliest appearances. I remember seeing an interview where he talked about only making like four grand in Moonrise Kingdom. Yes. And that he essentially lost money on that deal, which makes sense to me because once you give out your agent and lawyer fees and all of that, those percentages say 25% of the earnings. And then maybe he paid for his own accommodation for mm. that week of shooting. So I believe that when he says he lost money working on that film and he's probably lost money in all of these films but what I found interesting is that specifically Scarlett Johansson's pay was $4,131 a week for her work on this film that's pretty wild so say that's what 25 to 30 grand before yeah. uh, taxes before fees or agents and lawyers it's a far cry from the 20 plus upfront she made from Black Widow 20 plus million <laughs> and, and not including the back end payments and the Obviously, she sued Disney for that film in particular, and mm. made a lot of money from that. So, yeah, a lot of a lot of passion and love for Wes Anderson projects. Yeah. So. everyone wants to kind of be a part of them, um, including those who are already in billion-dollar films, which we can mm. talk, you know, oh, talk about in the second half of the show. Jake, mm. what have you caught in the last week? I uh, caught a couple of films. Like I mentioned, I think two weeks ago when mm-hmm. Andy was on the show, I talked about. I'm ticking off films from the list. The official list. My girlfriend's dad sent me this list list. Which is... Uh, I'm starting to sense a theme from all the films yeah. that that, um, that Angus sent me. Because not only was American Graffiti one of the films in there, which of course we mm-hmm. covered extensively much earlier in the show, but uh, one that I hadn't seen and watched in this last week was indeed Vanishing Point. The okay. 1971, I guess, action 
car film. It, it's interesting. So, the pretty much the premise is Barry Newman plays very classic, silent, anti-hero Western character. Yep. There's a lot of Western parallels, and I'll get into that in a minute. He drives a white 1970 Dodge Challenger through the country, mm-hmm. and uh, the cops and law enforcement are on his ass virtually the whole time. So it's just a giant cross-country chase as he's trying to de- deliver this vehicle. And um, I thought this film was absolutely rad. I thought it was awesome. And I think it's so indicative of late 60s, early 70s, post-Haze Code films that, you know, we just talked about The French Connection last week, and then you look at films like Jewel and Easy Rider, and they're all... They're, they're so much more reliant on, like, their tone yeah, than they are, like, the story or the plot, necessarily. You know, the characters are quite bare bones, at least on the surface. There's a lot to read into about these characters and, like, their silence does say a lot about them in most cases. Mm. But otherwise, it's going for a, a somewhat psychedelic experience. And there's even uh, some interesting editing choices in this film where, uh, you know, either in the middle of a chase or towards the tail end of one of the big chases in the film, it would just randomly cut to, like, a racetrack with these race cars all crashing and, and these drivers, like, upside down and on fire and... And it kind of spoke to the, the just the raw, senseless addiction we have with violence as an audience. Yeah, Much no, like white noise. Much like white noise. <laughs> Couldn't help it. Got to get it in there. Got to get it in there. <laughs> but no, it, it felt very purposeful, and especially by the end of the film. And like the edit, it's done in a way where it's kind of abstract, and you almost can't quite tell if the audience that are quote-unquote watching the action are actually there. It's, it's kind of done in this vague way, which I thought was really interesting, but... Again, just relying on the the senselessness and the and the violence of it all, but very clearly influencing films like Mad Max later yeah. in the decade. But again, going back to the Western comparison, the opening scene, I'm like, this is straight up Once Upon a Time in the West. Like, not even just like the stillness, the calmness, but the use of sound design is immaculate in this mm. film, which I feel weird saying because half the dialogue is clearly ADR'd, <laughs> clearly. But like the actual sound design, the idea of um, how you know screeching tires and loud engines will like pass and decrease and increase in volume as yeah. they go past the camera. And I know I know saying it like that kind of makes it sound very simple and obvious, but there's just a fig, there's just a way that this film goes about it that was really gripping. Mm. And I remember saying that about Once Upon a Time in the West. I think that is my favorite like soundtrack of all time. Not just the music, but like the scope, the foley, the use of it all, the ambience was yeah. all just phenomenal. It is. So it it really reminded me of a lot of that. And, um, yeah, just, I I was enamored by it. There's actually, let me quickly check, because I posted a letterbox review, and I actually linked it. You can find a very good copy of this film on archive.org. Archive.org. Yeah, it's um Internet Archive, as they call it. And hmm. someone's just very nicely uploaded. Uh, in 2019, they uploaded the 1971 film. Very, very good quality. And you can stream it. You can just download it as an MP4. Yeah. It's wonderful. That's awesome. So I want, I want to thank the person who did that. I wonder, is there an uploading name? Uh, no. It, there's an identifier, which is just the name of the film. The H264. No. Okay. Well, whoever it is, we thank you for your service. Shout out to that person. Now, I saw another film mm-hmm. from the same list. I'll bounce it back to you first. I want to hear sure. a bit about what you've been watching in the last week. Yeah. Look, I managed to basically catch the entire... Uh, season three is which I've now checked is actually what it's called of the untold compiled document oh, documentaries. Oh, cool! 
So I'll go so through. So it the- is like basically a series. Yeah, I mean, it's an anthology right. doco series, basically with the, the central unifying theme being sports, right? right. So they're, they're a collection of sports documentaries. Most of them have all been, up until this season, had all been single 90-minute documentaries. Mm-hmm. I think the longest to this point was just under two hours. So right. none of them, they're all feature-length docos, but none of them took the episodic nature. Mm. Season three breaks this convention with one of them. Oh. Um Look, I'll go through each of them. I can do a couple and then jump back to you. Sure. Um, so I caught... I just want to make sure I get the names right. The episodic one was uh, Untold Swamp Kings, and that basically follows... Um, and there's big emphasis on at least two of them about collegiate athletes, which are basically in the system in America is um, your high school athlete, whether that's football, baseball, cheer, any, they're exceptional. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that if you perform well in these sports, you basically have your university degree covered for you, which, mm. um, you know, we talked about Emily, the criminal, the, yep. the whole emphasis of, of the massive amount of, of student debt that incurs. So Americans in their structure are incredibly encouraged to obviously take on, um, college sports so they can get in through their their uh college uh do their college degree basically i mean that that is life-changing to have especially in the u.s your college paid for (laughs) yeah and um look swamp kings basically follows the university of florida who um as of 2005 uh had only ever won one um national championship in a hundred years they bring on this um, new coach, and basically, the it's a four-episode series that tracks basically the five years in which this coach takes this team. It's only won one championship, and then they win two in four years, but mm. sort of goes through basically each season in, in a separate episode and, and basically breaks down why things didn't work. Look, I think this season, if we're, we're talking about them in the season format that Netflix is now kind of coining them. Okay. This untold season was probably considerably the worst of the oh, three. I thought you were going to say the best. Yeah, I mean, no, edge. I think season two, <laughs> I think, has some really good ones in there. I, I think one and two have really good ones and then not so good ones. But sure. this one, I just, I don't know. I think all f- four of them didn't really work, but I'll go through them. Swamp Kings, mm. I feel is kind of... And they've gotten very good at these sort of types of docos. They they definitely perfected the last chance you and the cheer shows um, yep. Netflix, where they follow it in the modern day, the contemporary. And and Swamp mm-hmm. Kings definitely as an archival docu doco. It's interesting that they go through the specifics of plays, the development of a, an offensive line and an imagination offense, and that's really interesting. But sure. other than that, I mean. There's not a lot there. I think that there's this sort of very similar emphasis on how much of a celebrity and how moving college ball is, but also how perfect they have to be for a very short period of time and Mm. how difficult that balance is for a lot of adolescent and young men. And then, of course, a lot of these guys who do their college degrees... Um, the best players go on to the NFL. So it's a real mix of all this stuff going on. And um, it kind of leads into the other one that kind of ties into the NFL conversation, which was Untold Johnny Football, which is probably my favorite of them. Okay. 
because um, I think this one explored more interesting themes and ideas, and it basically followed, um, at the end of every college season, they have basically the equivalent of the Brownlow, you know, they have a Heisman Trophy winner, mm. and, and Johnny Football follows uh, Johnny Menzel, who was oh, the first... Oh, Football's not his real name? No. Oh, no. damn. As his nickname. He was destined, Zeke. Yeah, well, and, and to be honest, in a lot of ways, he kind of was. He was this athlete that was the only person, and still to this day, is the only ever uh, freshman Heisman Trophy winner. So that means that he's out of high school, into college in the first year. Mm. Wow. He wins the best in the country. And that feat, like I said, is one time in 120 years that's happened. Yeah. So... Um, and basically, we kind of follow this, and he's kind of this kid that's got this sort of self-destructive nature about him. He's this absolute wizard, but he's a party animal, and he's actually the first one to address that there's this sort of this, the university in which he was at was kind of profiting off his success, but then challenging that sort of idea of the collegian pay model, mm. which is these athletes have their degrees paid for, but they get no royalties or anything like that and, uh, and it, it opens up that avenue of, of sort of uh-oh. exploitative nature and the Time university on strike yeah well this is it the <laughs> university was making i think they said 60 million dollars after his heisman Ooh. trophy but he doesn't see any of it but then you could argue i don't think his hex debt's going to cost that much well the the, the Maybe argu- 600 thousand but <laughs> the argument is and and i think the doco is is at times definitely angling these questions but at the same time they have their degrees paid for and if they play really well they leave the system after mm. 3 years in college and can then go into the nfl and then make a boatload of money so okay the argument is what does an 18 year old have to do with 20 million dollars why do they need that mm. and um, I see what you mean. Like this has the most interesting sort of complex, not even a moral question, but just like the question at hand. Yeah. Like, what does an eighteen-year-old need twenty million for? And my immediate response to that, not having seen this, for example, is like, well, if he earned it, then give him the damn money. But yeah, no, that is interesting. Yeah, and it does sort of lead to this spiral, and eventually, of course, he kind of torpedoes his college career through his bad behavior and then torpedoes his NFL career. Mm. Um, and is kind of left sort of just high and dry. And, and, and before I, I throw it back to you, that kind of ties into, yeah, I guess the third one, which was the, the Jake Paul, the problem child untold oh, documentary. Okay. And it's such an interesting, <laughs> this one was definitely the one that I was like, I say that, title and everyone goes oh my god you watched a jake paul documentary it's so interesting from a cultural point of view what jake paul and logan paul Mm. kind of represent to the generational gap you know this is these are two brothers and and it does emphasize jake paul but does logan is quite prevalent in the documentary obviously Mm. and they talk about very briefly not as much i i thought it honestly would be a the Paul's Rise to Stardom right. kind of documentary. Hey guys, how, look at we me. Got, how we got up here, yeah. yeah. Going to um, <laughs> inappropriate locations and filming them. <laughs> um, but, it, you know, it's quite oh, interesting dearest. because obviously, you know, there's this whole generation. I, I talk about this even with my like year nines and my year tens, is they're born, the year they're born is when Jake and Logan Paul first go to YouTube mm. and become Vine stars. So, 
their perception of them is Prime or their boxes. And that's such an interesting... Co- and they, they obviously know of their YouTube career, but they only know the controversial stuff. Mm-hmm. They don't know that at a time we idolized... Well, we, me, you and I probably didn't, but they were right. pop culture like our sensations. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jake was on the Disney Channel. Like, mm-hmm. this is... This is one of the things, and he wasn't on the—he wasn't a Disney Channel kid. He was so popular from his YouTube stuff that he became a Disney yeah, Channel recruit. Yeah, nuts. And we—we we kind of forget this because we often, you know, in revisionist history, we always isolate the, the, the worst or the most extreme parts of behavior. And what I found really interesting about that doco, or albeit once again, it kind of feels like it's framing the Menzel thing. I kind of sit in the same way where I'm like, well, the system works a certain way you're eventually going to make a lot of money if you keep your head down mm. and get to the NFL. So stop trying to frame it as if you're this guy getting kind of exploited. And then the same thing with the Jake Paul and the Logan Paul stuff is a lot of their stuff was self-imposed, but it tries to give oh, the pressures of being popular and, and mm. it very much takes that smallest violin influencer thing. And it's hard to buy into them. But at the same time, their adaptability to when they went from being these loved kind of cute younger men that, you know, like had mm. that Disney-esque charm to them, that Disney-esque immaturity and charm to them, to being absolutely loathed but absolutely capitalising on the fact that people hate them mm. and channeling that behaviour is kind of brilliant. And it's you can't help but be like, well, the fact that they've managed to keep themselves relevant in a content-heavy world, mm. a consumerist media world, and and the fact that even they get like testimonials from people like Mike Tyson, who's like, I don't really like them as people, but they completely resurged the boxing industry, mm. which was getting absolutely... And that's one of the big points that the doco's trying to adjust is, yeah, I mean, boxing's become this almost celebrity sport where we get all these YouTubers and stuff. Yeah, no, and like, I haven't watched any of that, but I hear about it a lot. And it's like even I'm watching, I'm listening to podcasts and like, oh, yeah, Chris Reagan got in the box and, and fought. And I was like, what on earth? You know, that kind of stuff. And the thing is, but he says, he goes, that's just what boxing is nowadays because we had all these athletes. Mm. No one was watching those fights. UFC eclipsed boxing because yeah. it took boxing and then added kicking in and fighting in it it's kind of memeified because the other one i think of is like boogie and and wings of redemption had like a boxing match and not that i saw it but it's like yeah the appeal is like oh look it's people in such a different world getting in the ring yeah And and the thing was it's like he's become this absolutely hated person but people want to see him get his head like caved Mm. in so they buy the pay per view, so yeah. and they just and it's just absolute theater aspect. But they're playing it up and they're capitalizing, and they're just they're in that way. They're really, it's that amazing ability, and it's like what the Kardashians do. They're mm. able to kind of capitalize on the car craft, popcorn, junk food aspects of human consumption now mm. in terms of media and. That is very interesting. I, I don't think the doco is anything. I think it kind of glorifies a little bit. And I, I don't okay. think it's anything brilliant. I think there are... What is... Why well, I think this season was kind of weaker, significantly weaker, was the stories they were telling were just kind of not as interesting or, or, or intriguing as previous ones. Yeah. I mean, the, the way you described some of the previous episodes, it had that sort of tickled 
sort of angle to it yeah. where it was like you're really going into this deep dive of something you don't quite understand. Yeah, I, and this all seems like a bit more comparatively surface level subject matter. And it and it's like you know, or they're ones where they're these amazing feats, and it's like you know, I said race of the century where Australia goes and wins the America's Cup. I think that's the second highest ranked one I've put on the mm. untold list. And I mean, part of that's probably being Australian and getting that patriotism aspect, but sure. it also is. <laughs> that was the only time they've ever lost, mm. so it really was a race of the century. Yeah, like, how did they do it? Yeah, what was the, the thing? Whereas, you know, watching a collegian team that yeah hadn't won a title in a hundred, like nearly a hundred years, win. Yeah, that's interesting. But why was it? The whole following the previous years, yeah, they go and win another one and then they lose another one. But I get it. They were trying to talk about how this team could have been like a dynasty team, like the greatest team of all time, and it didn't end up being that. Mm. But it wasn't the last dance. Like, like, that for me, like when you're watching Chicago do all of that, it's that's why that doco is so good. Mm. But you're trying to kind of, it feels like they're padding a little bit, you know, and Netflix. I, well, you I said they're about... getting longer now, aren't they? Yeah, but you, well, that one being episodic rather than just being a standalone sure. hour forty or two hour doco is, right. is is that big sort of like look how much we've gotten. I just don't think the episodic formulas doesn't need to be there all the time. Like, mm. it was nice for something like Woodstock, like ninety nine was really just a three hour doco. Mm. I mean, it was three forty fifty minute sort of bits, but. Yeah, they were all good. I'm glad I watched all of them. That I'm not even going to say too much about Hall of Shame. It was about steroids, and I didn't think it was that interesting. It okay. was kind of just fine. I mean, it was about the idea of uh, introducing a, a steroid-like substance. It felt sort of like they needed a fourth one, and it didn't. <laughs> I think that the other three kind of... It feels fit- like it's been done before, that kind of... Okay. I feel like I've watched about three on, on doping and sports before, and I... Honestly, I saw video essays that were more interesting on YouTube. Mm. Um, so That's kind of what the challenge is now, is against the video essays. Yeah. But what about you? Yeah, so I'll mention the other one I watched um, from the lists, and I wasn't as big on this one. So this was Getting Square. It's a 2003 Aussie comedic drama crime film. It felt quite indie uh, seems obscure. I don't know very many people who know about this film at all. And it stars a very young Sam Worthington, actually. Ooh. This is obviously like pre-Terminator and all of that. Um, so he plays a character that's out on parole due to a technicality. So the, the journey is him trying to get square, mm-hmm. so to be. But the thing is, the film starts in media res with this scene that takes place six months in the future and there's this big heist that's going on. So you kind of know from the get-go this is going to be more of like a down-spiraling journey of we yeah. kind of know that he's not going to get square and that something's going to... Like, what What are the steps that take him in, down into this journey? Or is it actually a journey on what it means to get square? Ooh, maybe. Look, I, I appreciate a lot of what this film does. I wasn't overly interested in the, in the narrative and the journeys. and It's like a tight 95-minute film. So it is quite brief. It doesn't ask a lot out of you, and 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 there's definitely a lot of people out there that would appreciate sort of the the caricatures that litter the cast of this film because you got you know you, Sam Worthington's your everyman criminal, you got sort of your greasy gangsters, you got your stern authorities, you know, all in black with the sunglasses, yeah. and it kind of plays into those um, caricatures, and they're all cussing with very Aussie slang. They're calling people Sheilas all the time. It's 
it it kind of feels like an Aussie version of Snatch in a way, where it's very entertaining and probably style over substance. Okay. Even though I don't want to say that this film's completely substanceless. And the entertainment's fun. Like, there's a great courtroom scene with uh, David Wenham that's hilarious. Um, just like a really realistic way of him trying to dodge questions and constantly asking about his bus fare and who's going to pay for his bus fare. Um, there's great stuff like that. And I really appreciated the cinematography. It's very striking. Even just the opening scene, you've got these like extreme high close-ups, 90-degree sideways angle, sort mm. of the anti-Dutch tilt, if you will. These like comic book split-screen effects, kind of like Ang Lee's Hulk. There's a shot where the... Uh, they're like drilling something and the camera's on the end of the drill so it's spinning really fast uh, in 360 sort of in unison with the drill so there's a lot of stuff like that and even just some of the slower scenes where they just put the camera at a really wide angle and you see you know this giant studio with these boxing uh, sorry punching bags all just sort of dangling uh, between the characters that having this conversation so I quite appreciated a lot of the cinematography even if the version I watched was a crappy like 240p copy on youtube <laughs> was like the only one i could find um but like i said a lot to appreciate but i i, I kind of watched it and and kind of forgot that i'd seen it the next morning yeah um it didn't stick with me on that level so um but i'm, I'm glad i watched it though it, it was certainly interesting i i definitely know it'd be people out there that are very much into the sort of the heist aspect the the grungy crime heavily aussie aspects of it mm yeah, so there's definitely there's enough in there, there for, for a lot of people. It definitely has an audience. I'm just a little outside that Venn diagram of, like, its perfect audience. So Yeah. Um, but, yeah, getting square, I, I... Yeah. There you go. <laughs> so, well, yeah, well, well, there's only two that I saw in the last week, unfortunately, other than the film of the week, of course. Yeah, well, thanks to uh, these, I've creeped up to 66 films this year. Ooh, so. I'm at 69. Still in the race <laughs> to hit 100... <laughs> Well, Jake, do you have anything you'd like to add before we move in the second half of the show? Uh, no, I'm I'm just about ready to uh take a drive out into the desert, Zeke. But Jake, what are we watching? Let's begin the show, Zeke. We're watching Asteroid City. What do those pulses indicate? What? Oh, the beeps and blips? We don't know. Some of our information about outer space may no longer be completely accurate. Anyway, there's still only nine planets in the solar system as far as we know, Billy. Except now there's an alien. What's happening now? I don't know. I don't like the way that guy looked at us. The alien. How did he, how did he look? Like we're doomed. Maybe we are. I've just informed the president. How long can they keep us in Asteroid City legally? The world will never be the same. That's an alien doing jumpy jacks. That's an alien in a top hat. What's out there? The meaning of life. Maybe there is one. Are you married? I'm a widower. But don't tell my kids. You're saying our mother died three weeks ago. Let's say she's in heaven. Which doesn't exist for me, of course, but you're Episcopalian. In my loneliness, I learned to give complete and unquestioning faith to the people I love. I don't know if that includes you, but it included my daughter and your four children. Sometimes I think I feel more at home outside the Earth's atmosphere. Oh, wow. Me too. They're strange, aren't they? They're children. Compared to normal people. Yes, that's correct. It's true. Mm-hmm. Freight train, freight train, going so fast. Freight train, freight train. Going so fast, I don't... I do a nude scene. You want to see it? Huh? Did I say yes? You didn't say anything. Uh, I meant yes. My, ma- my mouth didn't speak. We're changing events. 
spectacularly disrupt the itinerary of a junior Stargazer Space Cadet convention in an American desert town circa 1955. Ugh, it's a period piece. Ugh. But is it? <laughs> <laughs> That's true, because 1955 is the setting or the, the time of the play of which we're actually watching the story of the television broadcast of the playwrights writing that play. Mm. But the television sets are quite old. They are indeed. So maybe it is still the 50s, who knows? Yeah. There are three (laughs) storylines unfolding. Felt like Uh, 57. Yes, it did. (laughs) Technically, there are three. But yes, um, obviously, yeah, same sort of thing as French Dispatch, but at least a little more Mm. condensed. Um, it very, it very, very much is similar to the French Dispatch structure. Like I said, I think, I think it's a bit more. What's the word? Like the inception layering of the whole thing is probably a bit easier to explain. Yeah, I, I think that there's obviously that. I would, I would say that. I, I, and there's obviously the anthology aspect of French Dispatch, where this is three stories, or at least two stories, that particularly emphasize. Uh, one central unifying theme, and then yes. the, the third one more serves as a narrator aspect. Um, yeah, sort of the almost like an intro overview introduction. Yeah, kind of and that's yeah. Uh, that's obviously like you said. You know, the film kicks off with the the Cranston 1955 mm-hmm. sort of good night and good luck vibe. You know, like that. <laughs> that's good. Um, yeah. and ends up becoming this sort of sort of through line to basically offer objective rationale behind character motivations, particularly, um, you know, Augie's character mm-hmm. and um, sort of the creator. And we then get a sort of a Birdman-esque um, aspect in there, obviously having the fourth wall broken in the, in terms of the, the play unfolding in its uh, diegetic world, mm-hmm. I guess. And... Um, Obviously, outside of that, with the sort of exploring the backstage theatre stage play version, yeah, if you want to call yeah. it that. Um, and in, look, it's an interesting film. I think it's, it's like I said, the meta narrative, the the even the meta emotional states of characters, sure. Um, particularly through Schwartzman's character, is the only one that really crosses the threshold. Mm. Um, but. Uh, it's an interesting way to tell this story. It's uh, interesting, sort of. It's even got little COVID trickles in there. Obviously, having being a quarantine. I, I did think this play. feels like Wes Anderson's take on on the pandemic. Definitely. Um, there's that aspect in there. I think visually, for me, God, of any other year, if Barbie hadn't come out, I'd be like, man, the set design in this is just. Yeah, it's fantastic. it's fantastic. I did I did sort of um quote Greta Gerwig once again when thinking about the authentic artificiality, as she called it, with the faraway, um like cactus and mountain cutouts. I think they are actually like three D models that they just sort of plumped far away. It was in Spain, wasn't it? it was I think so. Yeah, and I guess that was for like the flat land, so that everything mm. was and much like Barbie, where everything, especially in Barbie Land, is so like uh, transparent and and all the buildings. There's not really any walls, so you can 
yes. sort of see really far away. Very Wizard of Oz-esque as well, which I think was Greta Gerwig's inspiration. And here, you're right, because it's in Spain, it's more just like the flat land and that all the the mountains and canyons that sort of serve as like 2D cutouts, yeah. um, even if they're not technically are, are strategically placed so that everything's sort of viewable from any perceivable angle, yeah. which goes into the typical diorama, you know, very symmetric framing that Wes Anderson always does. And what I think is so funny is, you know, if I were to watch this film without any previous context of Wes Anderson's filmography or his style, I might even be like, oh, wow, because it's a play, he's shooting it like it's a play. When, in fact, he's shooting it like it's any of his other films. And mm. it just so happens to <laughs> have that correlation. But going back to the structure, and I think you're right. I mean, the other thing is that, like you said, French Dispatch has the the um, anthology feel to it where all the stories are sort of isolated and and separated. And well, this... they're just editions in a, in a newspaper. Exactly. And, and there's still the layering. So you yeah. still have the characters on the top level commenting on the different stories and and it's the quote that I that I said when we talked about French Dispatch and why I love it so much is that it's sort of crazy non-chronological um, structure and, and going back and forth and, and going from a stage play to a to you know perceived you know realism or the, the black and white to color and all those changes they all speak to the multifaceted ways in which journalists go about crafting their stories and how mm. they re- are recontextualized over time with new meanings and applying that to here which is the stage play it feels so much more geared around the creative process and the, there's a quote towards the end of the film that we can definitely get into that I think totally speaks to this idea of the creative uh, process but unlike the French Dispatch where you have the top level characters commenting on the lower level stories in this one, it's sort of in a cycle where the lower end stories are are talking back to the higher end stories, and you have you know Brian Cranston accidentally stumbles into mm. you know a story two levels removed from where he should be <laughs> on that stage. So I think what's so interesting about this film, what I'm trying to say, I feel like, is that Wes Anderson's taken so many of the things he's been experimenting with in other films and applying it to this story that feels kind of perfect mm. for this story. Um, and then you've also got all the, the cast of characters that are playing, like you said, two versions of themselves. There's the actor and then the character in there. Yeah. And then, you know, even the third level of that is the actual, and it goes back to the A-list cast is like, we're going to refer to, you got Midge. And then I, I forget the name of the actress that is playing Midge, basically Hitchcock blonde. <laughs> yes. Something's very intentional for the fifties. Uh, but then you got at the top of that level is Scarlett Johansson, and because these are all A-listers and we're so familiar with these actors, and the film kind of moves at such a rapid pace, you don't have mm. time to memorize a lot of these names. You are sort of referring to each character by the actor's name. So I, I think there's a lot of very purposeful blending and multi-layering going on yeah. with this film. And I, I think that the obviously at its base level i think it's really good that you've already like attributed it to that three level cake you mm. know with with obviously cranston being just simply billed as the host yep. too so um to have that extra ambiguity there is simply is basically yeah the the story's narrator and mm. um obviously then in that underneath surface we're kind of going if that's in the circa 1955 the the play is probably being made in like the late forties, early fifties, and then of course that the film's set in the fifties. So it all mm. around the, around the fact, but it 
it's quite interesting because you're 100% right because so many characters don't really get a lot of uh, screen time to understand their character motivations and stuff. We generally just go, oh, that's Lee Schreiber or mm. that's Steve Carell. And then we don't really get to explore their, their motivations or anything anymore. So you're 100% right. There is that meta narrative going on. Well, I think it's more, not even necessarily the motivations. I am in, incredibly impressed by the script, how much it is able to wedge in there in terms of character motivations and their histories and their past and the relationships they all have with each other, I think are all excellently explored. It's just all at such a fast pace that unless you do plan to see this film multiple times... That is how your brain, especially us, we're such film nerds and we know these actors. Mm. You know, there's going to be a lot of people that watch this film and don't... Oh, it's it's um, it's um Black Widow. Mm. They might not even know her name is Scarlett Johansson, for example. So there's, there's a lot of that layering in there that I think does affect your... As an audience, the way you watch the film, that also speaks to the themes mm. of the film and, and this idea of the creative process and, and especially characters that are trying to... I mean, let's look at that first one. Let's look at Jason Schwartzman's character where he's a wartime photographer and he's going through this sense of grief because not only has he, I guess, lost his wife, played by Margot Robbie, I completely forgot that she was in this movie. (laughs) Right off the barbie. It's going to be the... You know, if she wins female... Best female actress. It's right. going to be the uh, Matthew McConaughey <laughs> showing up in another <laughs> film just to show off their Oscar. Oh god, that's great. Um, is it? Yeah, it's a Family Guy bit where Brian Cranston just sneezes and gets an Emmy for sneezing. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I completely forgot she was in the film. But to that point, this idea that he's grieving over his dead wife and he doesn't know how to tell his kids. And then I don't want to jump too far ahead, but then they have the the higher level storytelling where he as an actor isn't able to work with the Margot Robbie actress. I think she's simply coined as the wife Mm. um, or the actress, so to speak. So the idea that he's perhaps grieving over the fact that he can't work with this person anymore because they've cut her part. Not just that. It's the grievance of his relationship with Conrad. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think that's really sort of the the bare bones there is is he's sort of in this sort of meta narrative because at the top, the host is basically almost telling uh the host is the most contemporary mm. uh story in the sense that has the most like knowledge well, in terms of time removed from that scenario absolutely yeah because yeah, he's the one who who reveals sort of and you know, like you said you know spoil ahead but guess what it's <laughs> the same as it is every week you know if you're at this point you've probably watched the film but <laughs> yeah i mean he alludes he goes oh well conrad dies in a, in a car accident and mm. we know very early on in the film that um schwartzman's character uh, augie in the asteroid city play yeah. Yeah. um gets his part and is also has a relationship with the with the director mm. in, in in um edward norton's uh character in in conrad right. and yeah. and that's adding that sort of duality and uh, of crisis and mourning because Augie's character is mourning the loss of a wife, but it's mm. at the same time, Swartzman's character's, lo- you know, mourning the loss of, of a lover. And, and then the idea of this dreamlike state uh, escapism is the way that we get away from or cope with grief. Mm. Um, and that's kind of what Asteroid City is, is that, sort of toy-like, utopic, in a way, <laughs> desert utopic, and yeah. um, way of escaping that grief. 
even though obviously Augie's character is suffering that grief, but finds escapism in the in the desert to an extent. Finds love for his kids, or you know, his kid mm. finds um, sort of escapism. It's it is a layered storytelling, but I think in the last fifteen minutes, we're sort of kind of kind of getting what Wes Anderson's trying to do there. How we use art and culture and and stories and, mm. and movies to escape sometimes crisis. It's our comfort. It's our yeah way of of dreaming, if you will. Um, and to I, avoid that, I guess it speaks to because that that's something that I know I've ri- I've definitely written stuff in the past that's like based on real life events or my mm-hmm. own stuff, and I've written characters who were basically meant to be me. And I know for me personally, one of the big things that I have to do in that scenario is not to exaggerate things, but to really make it cinematic and to mm. find maybe what the real life counterpart was, and then find a way to make it very visual or very big and me- very metaphorical. And and I guess in Asteroid City, what that would be is the fact that this is, obviously, it's the, um, what is it, the Stargazer Space Cadet Convention thing, so mm. you've got all these characters all confined to this space, and it has that wider world resonance because there's the big crater on the floor, which is really just kind of cool in terms of the history of it. Um, and what you have is a story, at least the play version of the story, about an alien coming down into this spot and all these characters having to quarantine because of this interaction with an alien. Everyone's so sort of dazzled by it and confused by it and inspired by it. And yet the story really isn't about that at all. No. And it, it comes back to that grief and, and learning to process. And, and for me, I think the big... Like you said, it's sort of towards the end of the film where it starts to click. For me, it was this idea of the kids having the ashes of their dead mother... And just wanting to bury it there in Asteroid City. And the fact that buried amongst all of this huge intergalactic scale and history and context is the ashes of this random woman who meant a lot to her husband and mm. meant a lot to her kids. And I think that was... And obviously you got Tom Hanks, which I was I was happy how kind of... Not mean he is, but he's, he's kind of a reserved semi-angry grandpa in this film yeah i, <laughs> I think, was pleasantly surprised by that i think it's obviously i think bill murray was the obviously yes, the original correct. consideration yes you're right there's always part of me that's just it's such a shame obviously bill's getting quite old too mm. but you know that it's interesting i think he just got covid like right as we're about to shoot this i mean yeah. that's the main reason why he i think it's it. it's quite funny though because wes anderson films are so definitively a set cast and yep. there have been additions over time that have become st- staples you know like it, it's Schwartzman's been there obviously since day one and, yeah well this kind of feels know, like a home run for him in the same way that Killian Murphy got his home run in Oppenheimer I th- I would I'm very similar. going to concur with you I think yeah. in a lot of ways although I, I do adore Rushmore I think that we're finally getting a real emphasis on how good Jason Schwartzman mm. is in a Wes Anderson sort of context i think yeah um this film allows him but like i was saying that there are people that have been added over time like ed norton's one that has definitely become a synonymous staple with yep. wes anderson films and jeffrey wright has also yep. become and tilda swinton those numbers up well even like i feel like brian cranston scarlett hansen they're all they've all been in the animated films or at least they were in yeah. Island dogs so they're starting to crank up those numbers as well yeah absolutely even leave schreiber mm. um so it's it's nice to see, like you said, the animated ones kind of get that that FaceTime version, so we get to see them in a 
in the physical embodiment yeah. of a Wes Anderson film. That's great. Obviously, some new additions. It, it there are feel, there are sometimes for me like Tom Hanks. Thankfully, doesn't feel too out of place in this film. Mm. Um, he also has kind of probably just the right amount of sort of screen time. I don't know if he mm. completely fits in the Wes Anderson world for okay. me. I don't know if it's a. I want to see another Tom Hanks. Uh, Wes Anderson performance. You but... can clearly tell it was written for Bill Murray, and I think that might have hindered Tom Hanks's ability to really gel in with the cast, to mm. have like his own identity of what his, you know, fast-paced, controlled Wes Anderson dialogue sounds like coming out of his mouth. So I will yeah. give him that that he he was kind of hindered from the get-go. Yeah, that but it wasn't written. For that's him. my that's my honest opinion. Sure, uh, sure. I mean, that's I think that's very fair. I think a lot of the performances are pretty immaculate. I think. I really enjoyed a lot. It's nice seeing, like we were saying, a, a sort of a revolving door. It's always good to see, like, these recurring ones, the Adrian Brodies get their mm. sort of moment in the film, which is which is really important. Tilda Swinton's a lot of fun in this film as well. She's looking really... You know what? I was, like, genuinely, like, I think mm. that's Tilda Swinton, but she looks too young to be Tilda Swinton. <laughs> She's just not aging, is she? It's genuinely She's surprising. Well. And we've got to give a shout-out to Succession alumni Hope Davis and uh, Fisher Stevens. So he's great. He, he's got woof, the... Woof, woof. woof. <laughs> and he's, got, he's got the best um, sleepwalking pose towards the end of the film. <laughs> <laughs> he just does it with a zombie. Jake Ryan as Woodrow. He's great. Yeah. He's I, awesome. He's, but this is what I kind of like, this new generation of, mm. of sort of Wes Anderson uh, sort of people getting inducted in. Um, well, that whole group, like the Brainiac group of kids, Grace I, Edwards. I, yeah, uh, I love that. Um, Sophia Lilies. I, I, the, they were all great, and I love the game they play as well. Like the 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 memory game that yeah. they say they can't play at school with others, but they can in that you know in this environment play with each other. I just thought that was such like a sweet mm. little sentiment that get out. Maya Hawk. Maya Hawk is fantastic, and she's just so sweet. She is. She really is. A little heavenly pose. And it is. There's something about her. And she probably has arguably some of the. the, Definitely the most lovable, nice, warm scenes. Like her courtship Mm. relationship with. um, Basically just a a cowboy that was kind of helping them. Just kind of that. (laughs) But that's what I meant earlier as well, where like the film has enough breathing room to focus on these multiple relationships because you've got the inner family relationship you've got midge's relationship with orgy or augie and um and then even then she's got her own like the obsession with her own performance and that stuff you got i love steve carell's trying to pawn off land through vending machines that's just the best i love it but like you said even that relationship where basically it's little tie in the bow is that they get a little dance together right before the film ends yeah and it little, is, like um her like, performance what, is really nice and it's a slightly overwhelmed young teacher that doesn't really know mm. how to sort of uh quite translate the situation that's unfolding and answer all the questions because yeah you know, it's the like kids the are all so fascinated by what yeah, they just saw. A, yeah, that's the way she's like, oh, we're just going to stick to my lesson plan. I'm going to stick to my lesson plan. <laughs> I got a little chuckle out of that. And obviously having a, more, a slightly more uh, senior, but not as a intellectual man coming in and actually articulating the sort of mm. uh, way. And it was actually a very sweet sort of uh, a lighter sort of almost uh, uh, 
I don't know, like an in, a nice moment in like an inside Lewin Davis country way. Or right, I see. Something yeah. like that. <laughs> I don't know. There isn't many nice moments in inside Lewin Davis, but... No, but um, they, they exist. It's those warm country moments, but it's such a gorgeous... It's a, like you said, I love that description of being able to almost... It almost like Google Earths you. You put yourself mm. in the middle of the street view and you have that sort of rotational aspect to... Yeah, full 360 the, in the environment. The entire set and... Yeah, it's a really nice film. I think no director other than Wes Anderson would get away with creating an alien that looked like that <laughs> and it being accepted as alter... I, I love it. I love it. Noodle Man. Well, that, that's the great thing as well. Oh, there's a great letterbox. I know it's been a while since we've done this, but the, 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 the letterbox review shout-out uh, has to go to Reese for this film for features possibly the greatest freaky little guy in cinema history. You'll know it when you see him. <laughs> Which I think is fantastic, but you know, the way I read that comment and then thought it was the kid that was singing. <laughs> <laughs> it took me a minute before I was like, "Oh yeah, probably the alien is yeah. who he's referring to." But like to that point, I love that. I mean, again, doing the Barbie thing where you got like these puppet animals. Mm. I know in Barbie it's like the pelican, but in here it's like this little creepy bird that kind of walks around and dances on the floor. And it is a desert, so you expect that. But just like the this the disproportionate sizes of everything, which you could like, it works in such a classic film yeah. style. When I saw B roll of them shooting the opening train sequence, I love that we start on the train that's sort of taking you to Asteroid City, and you've got like yeah. the missiles on there, which is great. But you can there's a part of your brain that can tell that it's like misproportionately sized, and it's actually like this small little tram that like oh, your five year old kid could ride in if they wanted yeah. to. Um, I love those little details, but then mixing in with the alien, I'm sure that was stop motion yeah, footage or some sort of um, rotoscoped footage. So there's a lot of like animation and fun masking tools that are also going into well, the, it's the that, style. Uh, and it's that obnoxiously slight, like bad. Like the fact that the right. human dressed up as the alien in the last sort of bits looks more realistic than the alien that's actually <laughs> in the astro. But it's that dreamlike. Um, sort of aspect to it where and it's otherworldly as well yeah and it, it's genuinely quite uh, charming and, and when it appeared I didn't go oh that looks so bad I was just mm. like oh yeah it's a Wes Anderson film like it, it, it's that and that's where like that full complement of auteur right there where he's taken this otherworldly shroud and, and the fact that it's so interesting because, like you said, they, they completely secede the first contact film in terms of this isn't about some big uh, first contact. It's not a Close Encounters of the Third Kind where characters yeah. have this massive revelation of, of, of finding and finally communing with these Although aliens. I will say those little musical dots were very reminiscent of Close Encounters of the yeah. Third Kind, yeah. Um, but it's not about... There isn't this big communication no, scene. No. Um, between the aliens there's not this big music number or anything like that and and the fact that this alien drops down with these laughably big eyes i loved it and it was great <laughs> and just picks the meteorite in the most awkward long kind of scene and just leaves only to come back and have just simply barcoded it basically inventory yeah it. yeah and you know what's so great a little detail about that because there is this aura of mystery in that scene and I'm sure we'll talk about it later as well, maybe in our highlight scenes, but I love the detail that he poses for Augie's photo <laughs> and that, like, this mysterious figure that we know nothing about has, like, the conscience of mind and knowledge to see a photo, uh, a camera, and understand what a photograph is and to pose for it. 
but it's it's this thing it's this also the aspect of having this foreign thing that has been built up the mm-hmm. oh do we have life out there and then it just happens and all the characters yeah they're asking questions about like the kids are asking all the questions but we cut to you know Augie talking to to um, Midge, to Midge mm-hmm. and he shows her the picture of the alien but Midge cares more about the photo of her <laughs> I mean, that says more about her than it does the wider asteroid city. Yeah, but but I, I know what you mean, though. But yeah. there, there isn't a lot of, you know, if you actually... The younger minds are stimulated by asking mm. more. But the parents, they don't care. They just want to get out of the quarantine. Yeah. Like, you know, there's a whole conversation between Grell and, and Hope Davis and, and um, Schreiber where they're mm. just talking about breaking the quarantine. And it's the younger minds that are stimulated by asking the questions, whereas the older ones are sort of lost in themselves in a lot of yeah. ways. And, and There's almost like a too much logic that's sort of blocking out the wonderment of what they just experienced. Yeah. I wonder if that's something that Wes Anderson maybe personally observed during COVID and maybe that yeah. was something he wanted to pump into this film was the difference between a child's response to the pandemic and then an adult's response to the pandemic. Potentially. I mean, it mm. could also be the fact that maybe the young people, or at least some young people in the perspective of, of Anderson might have been stimulated by the opportunity to sit at home mm. and uh they're you know the fact like you said like um augie's three youngest who i think are triplets mm. I, I think that's the assumption they're triplets yeah um uh don't care that they're in the middle of nowhere in all they've got is one diner a garage yeah. and they're, they're just happy playing witches. And <laughs> and then, obviously, Woodrow is found basically the most like-minded people out in the middle of nowhere. Like, mm. he doesn't feel ostracized from society and, and is kind of thriving, having intellectual equals around him. Yeah. Um, and I find it really interesting because, yeah, maybe that's the commentary that's been going on there, the fact that in all of this crisis, Woodrow, we don't see really too much about Woodrow grieving. He kind of, you know, like, that's another thing. The whole aspect of, at the start of the film, we find out Augie's just, you know, recently widowed, Mm. but tells his kids within the first 15 minutes of the film. Yeah. So I I guess that kind of implies that the film is not so much about him physically, you know, gusting the courage to tell his kids, but more just the the aftermath of that and the grief that sort of, lingers and 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 like an atom bomb kind of uh, <laughs> radiates yeah. slowly throughout it, can, it it really is just sort of a marriage of oppenheimer and barbie in a way <laughs> isn't it you've got the weird doll like aspect yeah and then and you've got, got atom the atom bombs in the background <laughs> i actually did you kind of notice i thought it was so interesting just how not loud the, this from color to black and white <laughs> <laughs> Bloody Wes! I would say Wes was ripping them both off, but he did. This film technically came out before either and of those. And the weird other surrealist two. ending where they're yeah. all talking about sleeping and the <laughs> lights are getting really bright. <laughs> Wait a second! Uh, I I thought it was. I was so curious by, and I, I'm curious what your thoughts are on the, just sort of the loud stingers throughout the soundtrack. We got trains, car chases, shootouts, fireworks. There's all these different things that are just like sparking loud sounds throughout, and I, I like. I was trying to sort of... It's. I think it's the ethereal dream state. The looping mm. car chase that comes around... I think it, I'm going to say three times. I think right. it's three, but it might be four. 
Um, Plant reminder payoff. It's the looping way of dreaming, and and I think it always screams back to at the lowest level. And it's so great you pointed out the tier aspect to Mm. this because I think that is really important. I feel like you pointed that out. I pointed out three stories. I think you took it that step further and turned it into an inception. I guess so. Yeah, sure. Um, Which is is inception s in that terms of it's you know sort of got that um, multi tier story going, Mm. but. It 100% does, because at that bottom level, that's the most dream and ethereal state, and I think... It's where all the creative energy is being surged into, is that lowest level story. Yeah, and and if anything, the what we're seeing feels like that's how Augie sees the play. Mm. Um, Schwartzman's, obviously, actor. Character, I can't yeah. remember his, acting, his actor's name, but... I feel like that's what he's kind of depicting, and it, and I think if anything, it becomes that becomes sort of truth in terms of its subject discourse because in the final climax, when um, Jeffrey Wright's character, the Colonel, goes, mm. "Yeah, you're back in quarantine because of the recent <laughs> events," and everyone loses their marbles, <laughs> and he goes, "What's the point of this story?" He and he literally, out, yeah. well, he breaks the fifth wall because he's going the opposite <laughs> way or the third wall i, I, I mean, don't even think there is a fourth wall to break in this film it's just gone already but you know what i mean like yeah. he literally walks off step to us and then obviously we get that margot robbie sort of scene on the balcony mm. and i think if anything what we're that that to me makes it out apparent that what we're seeing on the color asteroid city level that's schwartzman's character's perspective of the play it's him right. imagining dreaming out that state Mm. Um, he doesn't see the 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 play as a stage, and that's that embodiment thing. And I think that you know you could link that to their early scene when we introduce that idea of his relationship with Ed Norton's character mm. when he comes in dressed as a military man and then quickly yep. just puts a beard on and becomes Augie. Mm. Um, you're almost interlocking the worlds that way. But that's my the way I see it. I don't know. If no, I, th- I think that's right. And I'm I'm going to be honest. The film did melt my brain a little bit. So I'm, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so I'm happy for you to have your interpretation. I'll be like, yep, cool. <laughs> but yeah, well, I you know what? This is probably a perfect segue to talk about that line we mentioned earlier. You can't wake up if you don't fall asleep. It's just I think that's grief and escapism, mm. sort of surmounted in a weird sort of. Like I said, uh, the weird sort of takes that surrealist turn that like Oppenheimer does, where it goes from that weird sort of biographical sort of very grounded keeping everything separate to these weird surrealist depictions of flashing lights booming as yep. Jason Clark screaming or face melting off. Yeah, that's sort of what I get from that is mm. the idea of yeah, if as long as you're dreaming, you're able to sort of escape reality. Um, yeah. And but it's mostly how we often use art and art as an escapist tool. Mm. Orgy's well, the actor who Schwartz was playing yep. is is using that through Orgy. He's to the point where, you know, like you said, the, the Midge is is asking him to use that pain. But whose pain is it? Is it Orgy's pain or yeah, is it the exactly. actor's pain? I think yeah, for me. That line, even more so than like the more literal interpretations, although I do think that's probably spot on, is just like that spark of inspiration that as an artist you would have. Mm. And even if, you know, it's not immediately evident what that line even means that they're all just repeating over and over again. Um, 
but the importance of it being that it's something. It's something to take and move forward. Mm. You know, if you have writer's block, for example. Yeah. <laughs> but it definitely does feel like a, a COVID piece or a piece that was mm. birthed in that time of contemplation, thinking, and and perhaps grieving. Had they already shot the French Dispatch before COVID? I'm going to guess yes. I'm probably going to say so. Yeah. I think these things sit a long time in the edit suite mm. and it's a Wes Anderson film. Um, well, it's interesting because one of the other thoughts I had as well, obviously Wes Anderson's style is so sort of specific and overwhelming and so unique and it really doesn't feel like anyone else does films like he does. Yeah. And do you think that... Well, there's two things I'm going to ask you. There's one about the his wider career mm-hmm. and then one specifically about this film. I'll start with the wider career in the sense that do you think the uniqueness and just the... The, the, the speciality of his style is hindered by the fact that he is able to churn out films relatively quickly. I mean, he's made, what, 11, 12 films now? I think, was French Dispatch his 10th? Is that what Nearly you were saying? 30 years, though. True, but I or even Rocket think of... 95. Yeah, yeah. That's true, but then... Astro- I, I, for me, it blows my mind that even French Dispatch and Ast- Asteroid City are two years apart, post-COVID. That kind of blows my mind a little bit. Yeah, but then there was a big stint there, wasn't there? I mean, Isle of Dogs is 2017, and then Grand Budapest is 2014. Mm. So it's three okay. or four. I think it's exceptionally quick. I mean, is has Nolan produced more in that time? That's a good question. I mean, Nolan, I think Nolan 2014, has. 2017, 2020, 2023. From, oh, but it's pretty, pretty active, similar, actually, yeah. Active since 98 probably produced roughly about the same films, if not a few more. That's probably a pretty similar trajectory, yeah. you're right. I think it I think he's on a pretty regular schedule. I think Okay. So so you, your answer would probably be no, because no, I don't, don't think, think it's I don't that think, frequent. I don't think it's saturated. I think his films don't feel like they've ever suffered a significant dip for a long time. Mm. I think he's been very consistent. I don't think there's a film like you said, I mean, his style was so polarizing in the sense that if you don't like one of his films, you're not really going to like any of his films. Sure. I don't think that there's... The animated films are probably the most palatable of his films, mm. I think. Uh, I still think they're his best films, both of them. Yeah. I think them and I think Moonrise is pretty exceptional, mm. I think. I find Moonrise very, very good. You, have you seen every one of his films? I have. Nice. Yeah. He's probably the, the only director I can say I'm a completionist on, actually. Nice. Um, Which is funny because, yeah, I think Rushmore is actually, which is, you know, obviously being his first, but mm. there's something about Rushmore that's just a great, what a great first film, you know, and... and wasn't what Bottle, a first Bottle second Rocket? Film, wasn't second film, yeah, Bottle, Bottle, yeah, yeah, Bottle yeah, Sorry, Rocket. second film. Um... But just like that's when we really, I think it's the first real Wes Anderson film mm. we start to really encapsulate that sort of style. Whereas other directors like Tarantino, Reservoir Dogs is definitively like he's already in that film. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we, I do remember when we watched Bottle Rocket, and I've actually rewatched Bottle Rocket a few times since. There's there's echoes of of the kind of cinematography and style he's going to have in the future, yeah. but for the most part, Bottle Rocket isn't as recognizable. Yeah. as most of his other Rushmore films. definitely feels like the Wes Anderson arrival film and uh, yeah I, I think this film's like I don't think this film for me doesn't sp- I think I did enjoy French Dispatch more 
Yeah, um, I would definitely say so as well. I think I it really... The thing I like the most about this film, honestly, is probably the set. Mm. Um, and the way they utilise the it set. It is very unique, the way they did this. Um, it's not quite... Like, for me, it's the way they utilise the set. Like, everyone always points to Grand Budapest having that great set, but... Because you go out and you do go to other different locations, this is all just set in Asteroid yep. City to exactly. an, or on the stage. Um, but there's something about the Asteroid City set that's just so, like you said, fleshed out, and we mm. really do explore every inch of the desert. Uh, you know, and you can kind of tell that it's it's like a massive set that they they built all prior. Yeah, you know, when you look at a lot of films, I remember like the Last Jedi behind the scenes thing where it's like. They were in such a hurry to like build each set before it was due. They'll be shooting on one set and like, okay, tomorrow we're gonna shoot on this set. Hasn't been built yet. Yeah. <laughs> like it's just so like to the wire on the crunch. And for this film, you could kind of tell that oh, it was all just there. They'd finished it and then they started day one, and they didn't have to move or touch a thing. It was just all right. Let's shoot the whole movie now. Mm. Which kind of has that relaxing feeling. Yeah, yeah, they they really do. I love how much they fleshed out. I'm really bummed no one uses the ramp. Yeah. I honestly thought that was something that was yeah. going to happen. Yeah. No, that's... Especially the last time, like, the police chase went by. I thought... Might... Yeah, go yeah. over the lamp. Yeah, interesting. I know Jason Schwartzman said that that was, like, his little hidey hangout area between, like, takes. Was under the ramp. I think so, yeah. He would just like, kind of hide there and get a bit of shade and a bit of privacy. Yeah. So I think this is the best... Um, Schwartzman performance I've seen yeah, in a well. Wes Anderson film probably since Rushmore. I'm just going to take a quick look at his filmography. I haven't seen Rushmore, to be fair. Um, no, I, I mean, I can concur. Obviously, yeah, Moonrise Kingdom and Grand Budapest. He's in all of these as well. I forgot he's in Marie Antoinette. Man, it's been a while since I've, we've yeah. seen that film. Um, he was in Mainstream. Speaking of oh, a Coppola, dear. Coppola wrote this with Wes Anderson. Oh, uh, yeah, I did see that. Yeah. Crew, writers, Roman Coppola. Yeah. Oh, and to be fair, that's a he's a very um, common collaborator. He also yes. wrote the French Dispatch, Moonrise Kingdom, Isle of Dogs. Yeah, excellent. Well, the other thing I was going to ask you, that was my question regarding his wider career. I want to ask you a question specifically about this film. Whether you think mm. this was, whether you think it aids the film or it almost hinders the film, is the fact that the film is very much like very clear from the get-go about its own structure it's constantly feeding constantly feeding mm-hmm. you the scene numbers and all right and this is going to be act one scenes five through eight and it does it over and over again and we even see lines where on the on the higher level you have characters suggesting each other oh how about in act the third act how about you you say the line after you close this door yeah. and things like that or even for me the big one was the fact that it says it's jeff goldblum as the alien right in the opening credits of the film which, if you're going into this film blind, it's obviously it's a bit of a play because he's not playing the alien that is in most of the film. Yeah. But do you think that kind of hinders the film or aids the film that it's so upfront about its own structure constantly? Um. Hmm. I think it. I don't think it hinders it. Okay. I, th- I think the. I don't really see... The only one that I'm a little bit like, yeah, I don't really see the point, apart from you're just sort of honouring, you're purely honouring the art form, is mm. the is the acts... Right. Sorry, act two, like, 
scenes five yeah. to eight. Constantly and, breaking it up and showing you what you're like about putting to see. Putting those, and... to me, yeah, that to me doesn't really add anything to mm. it apart from you're really just trying to like honor that. But I don't think that does anything apart from that it's very much style over substance for me. Sure. I think you have a lot of other moving pieces going with the three-tier narrative and and all that that you don't really need to add that aspect in there, mm. but it's very normal for a Wes Anderson to cut to a picture of something right. while characters are talking <laughs> about it. So I think... But the whole, like, cutting to the Adrian Brody scene where he's, you know, talking to his... Uh, recently divorced wife or divorcing wife and yeah no none of that stuff really hindered me okay no because i think that's I, part I would, of that tier narrative yeah no I, I i would agree with you i don't think it hindered i i was very curious and almost distracted by it for a big portion of the film but you're right it, it it's sort of just serving its purpose as like as as part of the play mm. stage play creative culture and this idea of because we as an audience are so aware of the structure, it kind of gives us an insight into the actors that are playing in that middle level of the story, that are yeah, sort of self-aware of the story they're telling. might also help with our perception that we, we're assuming things are going to escalate. Mm. And the fact that nothing really escalates in the film might lead us to the frustration that Augie feels before he gets his clarity of mind in I guess so, what, yeah. the, what the play is about. Because... If the result of the play is that everyone just freaks out and then they go home, mm. then how much closure is that? What was it all for, I guess, mm. is the the argument. But then that's how life works to an extent. I think we have to deal with our grief as it comes to us and how we deal with it is in the moment. Yeah. Um, well, I, w- I wonder if even just that sort of... that almost punchline joke of... Oh no, we're really not going back in a isolation. You can go home now, or like, everyone's already left. Mm. I wonder if that's sort of, again, almost like a real life parallel, like something Wes Anderson experienced himself in regards yeah. to the lockdown protocols. Nature, yeah. yeah, exactly. Of the government agencies and like how important is this extraterrestrial, you know, mysterious side of the story? Is it really that important? They can just mm. drop it like that. It's interesting, Zeke. Yeah. What's your highlight scene? That's a tricky one, to be honest. There's a quite a few little cool... I like the montage of the, the cadets mm. uh, inauguration. That's cool. Um, and it's mostly in the trailer, though, so I'll probably stay away from that one. Is that is that like they're trying out all the different experiments? Yeah, yeah they're, they're showing made? what each kid's like special at, basically. That's another great example. It's not even just masking. This, there's, um, there's like a time-lapse shot in there as well. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was really cool to merge that into the yeah, and then there's also yeah, obviously pushing inside to making the letterbox frame and oh yeah, yeah. Um, very classic Wes Anderson sort of stuff we see in there. I'm probably gonna go with um, I I'm a big fan of all of the scenes that take place between Midge and um, and, and Augie. Augie through the windows. I like the, those are cool the, those shots. shot composites yeah. and stuff, and particularly the one where after all that emotion sort of unfolds. Um, Augie chooses to stick his hand on like a on <laughs> like, like a, a lightning thing. a lightning bolt, oh, a yeah. ziggy toasty thing. <laughs> I think that's just kind of funny, and she almost like breaks character in that moment. Like I can't believe he did that. Yeah, I think that's quite a fun scene. Yeah, I'll go with that one. Ah, what about nice. you? Um, I would probably we talked about it already a bit, but I would have to go with that initial 
um, scene where the alien first arrives and and uh, yeah, it's like it, obviously his animation is is very amusing. But what I loved about it is like even though we have this Wes Anderson like sort of fun, relaxing, not relaxing, but like soothing mm. comedy in a way, like it, it is sort of aesthetically pleasing, sort of the banana colored world <laughs> that we're in. Kodak. Like Kodak yeah, the thirty five millimeter Kodak. Yeah, it looks absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. So yeah, no, it's a good pull, but. Um, what I loved about it, especially, is that even though it's still doing all those things that are that are, you were familiar with, with Wes Anderson films, is it still feels like a really great, mysterious, uh, otherworldly alien interaction scene, mm. not unlike one that you may find in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and even just like the saucer coming down. And what I loved is the intro- introduction of everyone's got the cardboard box. Um, uh, what would you even call them? like I guess glasses so, like, yeah. to look through the lens and I just love that visual of everybody slowly taking it off as they realize their vision's been impeded by the saucer and just like the mystery and the quietness of it all yeah. like I just I actually thought it was really phenomenally done excellent so uh, as, as silly as the alien may look <laughs> well Wes Anderson's 11th film Asteroid City mm. is currently out in cinemas near you yay but speaking of cinemas what's new to cinemas and streaming platforms this week jake uh there's a few things we've got films like the daughter and michael uh Schulter's spoiler alert both coming to binge later this week that's the um like two two male lovers and one of them is cancer and jim oh. jim parsons plays one of them i think okay um yeah and i, I ended up seeing spoiler it. alert i don't know what's happening. that's the premise is <laughs> it's not a spoiler <laughs> Oh, oh, damn. That took me a minute, Zeke. Unagi. That, that took me a damn minute, I tell you. Uh, coming to Netflix, we got Choose Love, which is a rom-com that sees Cammy have it all, the perfect job and boyfriend, but something is missing. That changes when an old love returns to her life. Oh! Is she going to cheat on her boyfriend? Uh-oh. Spaghetti-o. Uh-oh, Spaghetti-o. Oh, God. Is that is that just like the cheap Netflix Netflix version of Past Lives? Maybe. Which, which I thought was going was coming wide in cinemas. We were thinking about doing it next week, and then we yep. realised, oh, no cinemas are playing it this week. Nope. We can't watch it. <laughs> got one Wednesday, uh, one o'clock yeah. screening, and we're both... It's not even this Wednesday. It's the next week Wednesday. Wednesday. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, that's not going to work. Um, yeah, whoops. Uh, we've also got a Swedish film coming to Netflix called A Day and a Half, which sees an armed man desperate to reunite with his daughter burst into a medical centre and kidnap... He's estranged wife. That sounds uh, that sounds, sounds also funny. Reasonable. <laughs> I'm sure there was a reasonable thing that young man oh, did. Yes. Uh, and also coming to Netflix this week is the live action One Piece adaptation. Zeke, are you interested in this at all? Um, no, maybe no. I don't know. I think it's intriguing enough I, I, like I said I didn't have too much of a problem I, I watched most of the first that Cowboy Bebop mm. pilot season but after yep. it got told it was getting cancelled I went yeah, eh, I'm not going to finish this off really because what's the point like yeah. I wasn't like adoring it like something like Firefly and um, obviously Firefly eventually got that epilogue kind of film but mm. I'm worried because something like this I never understand this concept of anime live adaptation because no one's ever happy with them Mm. right like the anime lovers hate them and the general population kind of finds it weird Mm. 
right? Because that's anime. Nobody's happy. So no one's happy. And if it gets, you know, we get halfway through this first season and they cancel One Piece, what's the point? Yeah. Like, what was the, what a waste of money, once again. It's like taking, like, I just don't know many live adaptations from anime that people like. No one yeah. likes the Ghost in the Shell mm. live adaptation. Oh, I think I, I, up, yeah, I can't think of an example of something. Yeah. If someone can, hit me up. E- email it to us. Email it to us. With our publicly available emails. Cinemasagerpodcast <laughs> at gmail.com. Is that a real email? I think so. Oh. Well, some, someone's getting that. Yeah. <laughs> someone's getting that email. I don't know if it's us, but it's some, secretary. someone's getting it. <laughs> it's secretary. Oh, God. Uh, coming to cinemas this week, we have Denzel Washington returns in a third Equalizer film. Cool. He's in Italy for this one. Oh, there you go. I haven't even seen the first two. Neither. And I, do I own one of them? I don't. My boss worked on the first one, so maybe I should watch it, but he doesn't have to know that. Yeah. He's very chill, actually, with stuff. Sometimes I'm like, oh, I watched this thing. Being like, he's going to be so proud of me, and he just doesn't care. <laughs> Hollywood, people. Hollywood. Uh, we've also got Ego, the story of Michael Gunninski. Gunninski. It's an Australian documentary covering the life and career of the founder of Mushroom Records. Nice. Nice. Cool. My Sailor, My Love sees a retired sea captain and his daughter reassess their strained relationship after he begins a new romance romance with a widowed housekeeper. Excellent. You know, it's uh, your new mother-in-law. Is that Nessing how it's with done? the help. <laughs> oh, no, yeah. It's, um, also coming to Netflix is the Arnold documentary. Is I'm not going <laughs> to... Apparently, that was good. Okay. I'll take their word for it. Uh, we've also got films such as uh, Disney's Haunted Mansion, which goes wide this week. I think they were previewing it in previous weeks. I'm going to skip over A24's Past Lives. We're not going to mention that this week. Uh, also, Hoyts are getting preview screenings this week of the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem, which is the Seth Rogen-produced Spider-Verse-styled animated film about the four classic characters, this time with the emphasis on the teenager. I'm pumped for this. Yeah. I think it's going to be great. Yeah. Uh, it's actually the best-reviewed Ninja Turtles film ever made. Which, well, actually, I don't know if that's saying a lot, because I don't think any of them reviewed that particularly well. <laughs> the live-action movies I'm talking about. Well, let's be optimistic, Jake. Let's be optimistic. No, but I, I I think this looks... I've said it since the moment the trailer came out. I don't care what anyone says. I'm like, this looks great. Excellent. Screw you all. I'm, I'm excited for this. I'm probably going to try and watch this this week if I have any time. Mm. Uh, going to bring pizza? I should. Mm. Good pizza at Hoyt's. They, they, yeah, certain Hoyt's do pizzas, don't they? Yeah. yeah. It's pizza time. You can just bring your own in. Cowabunga. And finally, a friend of the show, Stephen Mahalovich, has a new horror feature film premiering this Saturday, the 2nd of September at Ace Cinemas Midland. I've already got my ticket. It's called Violet. We, of course, interviewed him way back in episode 106, The Dry, where we talked about his previous film, The Crossing. And uh, look at it. He's back. Back with another film. Just in time for the dry sequel. That's it. <laughs> They're both on schedule, Zeke. Yeah. <laughs> the double screenings. They're going for it. I love it. Um, so I couldn't tell you when else that film is screening, hopefully later this year, but um, I screwed my ticket quite a while ago because it actually did sell out extremely fast. Excellent. So there you go. I've actually got, you may be able to see it, Zeke, somewhere down there, The Crossing CD, which is the music. Maybe I buried it deeper in the mm. pocket. 
I don't know if you could see it there. I don't think I can. Yeah. Oh, hang on. Yeah, it is. Oh, you got it? There it is. So that's all the music. Very cool. I'm still waiting for, like, the... Uh, the there's meant to be, like, a special edition Blu-ray is coming out that I'll... I'm Ooh. sure I'll buy off him if I can afford it. Excellent. <laughs> I might have waited too long. Now I can't afford it because I'm an adult. <laughs> Uh, but Zeke, that's everything coming to cinema and streaming this week. Excellent. Well, hey, look, speaking of Australian films, mm. friend of the show, Andy Newcomb, said we didn't do enough Australian films on this show. I today. know, very accusational. I know. We gave him a spot. We gave him a chair and a third mic. We all, we didn't mute his mic before we uploaded the podcast. It's going to so. be really awkward, too, because I think in the next couple of weeks we're going to tackle quite a few Australian <laughs> films. Um, but Jay- Take that, Andy. In response to that, we figured <laughs> we've got a week. We do free. have a week. We have a week free, and we've got a week left to live. Well, I sincerely hope not, but at uh, least we have at least one week. At least one week. That's good. So we figured we do another Australian film. But Jake, what are we watching next week on the show, Zeke? We're watching a little old film from Ben Yun, Hounds of Love. Hey, love, do you want a lift? You're going to write a letter to your parents. Say that you've met a bloke and he's got you a ticket to Adelaide. We see kids run off like this every day. You think she's prettier than me? Look at me. He doesn't love you. He can lie. He just uses you. When a young woman is randomly abducted from a suburban street by a disturbed couple, she soon observes the dynamic between her captures and quickly realises she must drive a wedge between them if she is to survive. This is a, well, it's a West Australian film too. So we're doubling up Australian and West Australian. Very dear and near to our hearts. We've seen this film more than once together. And um, this is kind of, this is one of those films that I'm shocked we didn't do in like the first four weeks of this show. I'm I'm very surprised too. It never made it past and 240 odd episodes later, here we are. I know. Finally doing it. Picking up the pieces. Yeah. Um, Look, it's a big film for... um, a lot of the people that listen to this show, which yeah. we'll talk about next week, um, sort of its cultural significance. And, of course, uh, I think definitely, given the time it came out in 2016, why, for a lot of the people that we know, this film mm. served as sort of an important coming-together film, despite being a quite gritty and confronting film. So yeah, it's a very dark film. If you haven't seen this, you want to watch it in the next week. Just be prepared. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely goes more into the Nightingale category. I was thinking of Nightingale. Far yeah. away from the, uh, the castle category. The castle category. <laughs> so this isn't a quaint Australian film. Um, but you'll look, it has all the classifications. Oh, the Serenity. Coming. Yes. Well, let's avoid that. But <laughs> until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Side Show podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with Ben Young's Hounds of Love. <laughs>